Okay, welcome and uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, very excited to uh, be bringing another episode of the Jane Birivulus uh, Irrigation Training Series. And uh, today we're gonna be talking about something I think is very important to all of us involved in irrigation and that is the future of irrigation. You know, each year, I really feel like each day, almost each hour, there seems to be more pressure on the industry to do more about conservation, really kind of prove what we're doing are the right things, that we care about conservation, and that uh, we're managing water properly. So when I started to think about this, uh, one of the first people that came to mind to actually talk about this was our guest today, uh, Lance Sweeney. You know, Lance founded uh, Sweeney and Associates over 40 years ago. Um, I, I'm always amazed at this. He, uh, he got his first uh, certifications for uh, irrigation and uh, auditing uh, back in 1990. I mean, that was so many years further than it was cool to be involved in water conservation. So, uh, and, and if you don't know Lance, um, I just wanna say uh, his company and he have done projects all over the world, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, China, and then a ton of great projects here in the United States. Um, a couple that uh, I've gotten to tour with Lance that uh, uh, are always very impressive when you get his uh, firsthand knowledge and, and experience. Uh, the Getty in particular was one that uh, you guys did the, uh, the, the gardens outside the Getty and that is just uh, something really spectacular to see. I think you guys did that maybe over 20 years ago now, is that right? Yeah, absolutely, back in the early 90s. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, I think that was really one of the projects that really launched your career. Um, it will put us on the map for sure. Yeah, so uh, I've, I've done some articles about you, Lance. I was I was reading the one I did back in 2016 about how I work, and it's funny. Everybody should take a look at that after the webinar, but uh, it talks about some of the technology you use in 2016. And, and today we think, oh man, that's kind of old technology. It happened really quick. That wasn't that long ago, but, uh, but you can see that and that's fun to see. You did a webinar with us a while back a few years ago where we talked about capturing rainwater on your property and what that looks like. It's fabulous, uh, popular. So, uh, so I'm really glad that you're back joining us today and, uh, and giving us this uh, knowledge and information. Happy to be here, Richard. Yeah, so Lance, well, the first thing I want to ask you, though, you're a board member of the ASIC, the American um, Society of Irrigation. of Irrigation Consultants, right? I knew I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys just had your uh, annual meeting a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, in Scottsdale back in uh, April. Yeah, so Lance, uh, I just wondered if there was anything that came out of that meeting. I mean, these are really some great minds of uh, irrigation uh, assembled together. Anything that came out of that meeting that you thought, wow, uh, this is something people should be really thinking about right now? I think the biggest thing that comes to mind is the, the push with new regulations and, and you know, municipal uh, agencies pushing to, to really eliminate uh, irrigation if possible and reduce it. And uh, you know, the, 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 the drumbeat for water conservation is strong. And uh, a lot of people who are on the, the, the water conservation side of things, where all they look at is how do we save water? How do we save water? They, they look at us in the landscape industry as, you know, kind of enemy number one. Why are we throwing all that water out into the landscape? And, uh, and I think that's really, you know, that's really shocking because, you know, I don't think a lot of them take into account 
you know, the quality of life that, uh, you know, landscape provides uh, in, in, our, in our cities and in our, in our, our communities, you know, it reduces heat island effects, it, you know, just, the, just the, the feeling that you get when you're walking through a nicely landscaped community versus something that's, you know, all concrete and, and brick and, and, and things like that. And I, and I think that really is, is something that needs to be taken into account. And I, I think they, they kind of shortchange us. And I think we ought to be all working toward, you know, showing people and our elected officials that landscaping and the irrigation that supports them is, is, is important to us. I think you're so right, uh, Lance. And you know, I, I've spent the last uh, 20 plus years of my life really focused on water conservation in landscape. And the thing that has really become a hot button for me, and I'm really noticing this more in the last four or five years than I have in the in the prior 15 or so, and that is this focus on if we if we get landscape to reduce, we're going to solve the water problem. But mm. for instance, here in California, where I live. Um, total water used by urban landscapes is about eight and a half or 9% of the total water. So even if we eliminated all of it, right. and believe me, I'm for conservation and landscape, but even if we eliminate all of it, it's not going to make anywhere near the dent that we need to do. And so my concern is that people think, well, if we can just get landscape, we'll be fine. And right. there's so much more to do, but I don't know why that, uh, that uh, target has really hit the landscape uh, industries uh, back. I think because it's, uh, I think partially because it's something people see all the time, right? You know, you, 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 you see the water use going on in the landscape and you think it must not be good. Um, a lot of the other uses of water you don't see, they're hidden away in different parts of the state and, you know, you, you just don't, you don't see them. So the, yeah. the average person reacts to what they see each and every day. Yeah. Right. Ah, that's such a good point. So anyway, moving forward, I just want to talk about, you know, technical advancements or innovations in, uh, in irrigation that you see happening now that might get more popular or you're hearing about that uh, may be popular in the next uh, three to five, five years. Right. Well, there's a lot of things uh, that we've seen in the last few years that I think are getting stronger and more prevalent in the industry. And uh, you know, everything from piping systems we're starting to use and see a lot more acceptance of high density polyethylene pipe for main lines. And uh, from a water conservation end of things, uh, you can reduce leaks in main lines tremendously using these high density polyethylene main lines because they're 100% heat fused, they're monolithic systems, and they just don't leak like PVC lines have a tendency to do, especially in larger main line systems. Uh, so we're seeing that become more and more accepted. The prices for that have dropped much, you know, much closer to what PVC pipe installation is now. And so it's becoming accepted. Um, seeing a lot more cloud-based central systems, uh, you know, automatic adjusting controllers, um, Wi-Fi, even homeowner Wi-Fi systems where you can check your, you know, check your phone to see what your irrigation's doing. And, and I think that's Kind of bringing that whole smart home thing full, you know, full circle, or even covering the landscape outside now, and that's becoming, you know, very popular. And, uh, and of course, it's required in California to have a smart controller, so that's there. Um, two wire continues to grow. Uh, I see a lot more two wire systems. The cost is getting much closer to conventional wire systems, and that's that's a, that's good news. And then uh, we've seen uh, there's a company out uh, called Thrive. EVO that actually has a wireless uh, control system now, and it's an add-on to your controller. 
uh, where you can control four valves up to 200 yards from your controller without having any wires there. And kind of that's a, you know, a retrofit product right now, but they're looking to take that technology to the point where we won't have wires in the, the landscape anymore. And I think that's really a great improvement because, you know, broken wires are the leading cause of valve failures in the field. And so if we can eliminate the wiring, uh, that would be a big help. Plus it's a reduction of, uh, you know, copper that's being used for so many other things in, in the world. So that's a good thing. Yeah, and so many. So many follow-ups to what you said. Sorry to interrupt. But no, go ahead, please. So, so the high-density polyethylene piping, right? I, I was going to mention earlier, right? We know that uh, a Stanford study has told us that 20 to 50% of the water going through our uh, water systems uh, infra infrastructure is leaking. Mm. And, uh, you know, 20 to fit, let's just use 20. That, that's uh, that's low-hanging fruit, right? But you don't see it, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. uh, is this going to help with that uh, that particular stat? Is that, that uh, possible? Well, I know that a lot of cities or, and municipal agencies are, are switching over to, you know, when they do new installs, they're putting in high-density polyethylene pipes. And you got to remember, Los Angeles still has some wooden pipes in their, in their system. And we <laughs> saw that a couple of years ago when they went to their you know, every other day watering regime and everyone jumped on, you know, and watered in mass quantities and, you know, and it caused high flows and that caused some pipe breaks. And some of the pipes they were actually finding that were broken were, were old wooden pipes, kind of like, you know, hot tub type situations. So there's a wide range of materials out there, everything from, like I said, wood to steel to AC concrete. So yeah, the new stuff I think is all pretty much going in now HDPE and we're pushing it for all large mainline systems, parks and schools, things like that, where you can actually get a 100% leak-free system uh, in your mainline using that product. Yeah, I think that's such great news. I think that's a, a big step in the right direction. Uh, you mentioned smart controllers and legislation in California. I see that Colorado and Nevada are also going to follow suit on that. Uh, I think in 2024, they're, they're gonna go that way and then you know, you mentioned something about two wire systems mm -hmm. um, being more expensive than conventional. Uh, did I hear that correctly? They used to be, but the, the prices are coming much closer. It used to be you could justify a two wire system if you had over 50 valves. But I, I think now you can start seeing it, you know, being cheaper than uh, than conventional wiring systems, conventional wired systems down into the, you know, high 20s. So, you know, it's just that when you start looking at all the wire, you have to put it on a conventional wire system and the wire costs have gone up substantially. The, the two wire systems are starting to become cost competitive with those. Uh, and I also think that the contractors who install those now fully understand them. Whereas a few years ago, there was, you know, there, there was a reluctance to jump on and, and start using them because they, they felt they were overly complicated. But uh, we're, all, we're all used to them now. Right, right. Decoder is a is a word in everybody's vocabulary now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Lance, we got a, a question coming in from one of our viewers, and they're asking, uh, "How do you adjust the smart controller to adhere to drought restrictions?" Yeah. Well, every controller is, is different, of course, and a lot of them have a percentage adjustment where you can actually dial down the the the, the amount of water applied by a percentage feature on the controller. So that that's one that's that's one way to do it. Probably the easiest way, because the whole idea. I mean, I, I personally feel that if you have a smart controller, you should be have a little more leeway because you're generally then if you're using it and programming it correctly, you're applying what those plants needs and those 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 controllers were really mandated because 
the old controllers that people would set once a year and let them run all year long, they were wasting water all throughout the times of year that you didn't need to over, you know, the extra water. So, um, yeah, I, I think that we're forcing the industry to go into these smart controllers. But, you know, if you're going to start making us reduce down below what the plants are actually needing, then we're looking at plant losses and stuff. And then, uh, but anyway, the answer to the question is with, with a percentage adjustment decrease. Yeah, it's very interesting too. We had a uh, customer in Fresno who uh, wanted to uh, water turf during uh, the drought restrictions. And uh, so we were able to make the argument that, um, you know, a 0.65 of uh, ET was acceptable to water other plants. What if we watered the uh, turf to 0.65 of ET? Mm -hmm. A uh, actual setting we could put in our uh, Jane Unity controllers. And you know, the city was happy with that. The customer was happy with that. The uh, turf didn't look great, but it looked okay. It and, uh, yeah, yeah and, and, <laughs> and I'm mentioning this because um, uh, this is even something that the cities are getting a little bit more sophisticated, right? That's a pretty sophisticated uh, concept, 0.65 of ET for turf, and and they were good with it. So mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a good thing. That is good. Yeah. So Lance, thinking about climate change, right? This weird uh, winter we had, uh, the weird summer we're having, right? It's still winter here in Southern California. I know you're warm up there. Uh, how is this going to affect uh, irrigation strategies and water management practices going forward? Well, it certainly drives a lot of legislation. Um, we're seeing two big uh, things being pushed through right now in the state of California. Uh, both have been passed on from the Assembly to the Senate. Uh, one of them is uh, Assembly Bill 1573. It's, it's actually a biodiversity uh, ordinance that they're pushing through where they're going to require non-residential projects to eventually have 75% of their landscape plants be native to the local area where the project is being built. So, so right now there's always been a push to use native plants and then also low water use adapted plants. But what they're pushing now for is for us to use plants that are only native to the local area. Um, and that's because they're concerned about bees and birds. And, uh, you know, uh, if we put too many non-native plants in, those bees and birds don't, uh, maybe don't react well, don't utilize those plants as well as that. All seemingly very valid concerns. But, you know, at the same time, we've been pushing for the development of low water use plants at these nurseries. And uh, they've been bringing out all these great plants that we all love to see in the landscape. But uh, that's going to change the that will change significantly the, the, the look of our landscapes in the future. Uh, it also eliminates uh, the use of any turf in non um, non residential areas. Um, which is part of the new wheel. If you look at the new draft wheel that they're putting out uh, they're, they're they're saying no turf at all in non residential areas. So yeah, so um, yeah, it can be a little frustrating, right? Uh, especially uh, for residents of places like uh, Malibu or Santa Monica, um, and and it does it takes away from the good work the industry has done. Um, now, I've often said it's well, I, yeah, I say it often. Uh, it's not what you water; it's how you water. And uh, we're seeing a lot of gains in um, in the reduction of water waste through systems. So. Uh, I'm just wondering, are you seeing any other emerging trends or developments in precision irrigation that you think are going to gain prominence as a result of this? 
Well, I think we're seeing more and more of the acceptance of subsurface drip irrigation, both in tube form and mat form. Uh, there's a couple mat products out on the market that are really good as far as uh, really creating high efficiency application methods. Um, they, you know, in the right application, they're, they're wonderful. And we've used them in many, many locations. Uh, you know, you're watering 100% of the ground surface uh, with a mat. And so your efficiencies are really high, but because the mat spreads the water quickly and efficiently, it's, it, it, you know, it, it really uh, is an efficient way to irrigate, which is what we're striving for, getting that efficiency as high as possible. But tubing has really become popular, you know, you slowly over the years, we've been using tubing now for 25 plus years. And, uh, you know, it started out being, you know, a fight every time and then slowly started to get more and more accepted. And uh, it's almost become routine. As a matter of fact, the new Wilo specifically calls out for subsurface drip irrigation in areas less than 10 foot wide. So that's... Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, which is, uh, I think, progress and certainly what we're experiencing or seeing is that, uh, you know, the, the map products, I agree with you, are, are good. Uh, we're also seeing closer emitter spacing, giving you more of a channel of water mm -hmm. instead of seeing the uh, circles that you would see uh, before. Right. So, uh, so that's based on soil texture too, though. So um, remember, you can actually put too much water into a clay soil. And we've seen that where, you know, you go through an area that happens to be in, in California, as we all you know, works in California knows on a site, you could have a couple different soil types going on. Unfortunately, it's not all even. And you'll see, you'll see an area that maybe is particularly high in clay and the, the water will actually surface before it'll pull into the soil. So, you, you know, in, in some of the strategies are in those clay soils is to apply the water slower to give the, the, the clay soils time to absorb it. So, yeah, yeah. But no, drip, drip irrigation is still going to be the leading, the leading uh, you know, application method of choice in the industry, and I think, for, for a long time to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you make a good point, too, about the soils and right. And it, it just kind of emphasizes how uh, complex this is. But uh, uh, but we're having to pay more attention to it as a result of uh, what's happening with water. So um, as far as water scarcity and uh, and ways to improve irrigation systems that uh, everybody's focused on or additional measures or laws, do you have any thoughts about what you'd like to see in the next uh, three to five years? Yeah, I mean, I like to see, uh, I, I'd, I'd love to see more use of, you know, recycled water in, in the industry. Uh, and I'd like to see them maybe take a little more time to, it, look at the quality of that recycled water. We all hear about recycled water being salty and, you know, and, and some plants don't do well with it. And, and, and that's certainly true. And some agencies have saltier water than others. I'd love to see some standards, you know, that uh, they, they, so they can produce water that won't be a detriment to the planting. You know, you, you, you know, you look at some of these, you know, systems that put out, you know, 700 part per million total dissolved solid water, and you, you end up getting salt crust on the ground when you use it. And, you know, we all want to conserve water, but give us something we can use that's not going to hurt our, hurt our landscape. So I'd like to see some improvement in that. We're, we're seeing a huge push uh, as water becomes more scarce to go to alternative water sources, certainly rainwater harvesting and stormwater harvesting and condensate harvesting, gray water. Uh, I 
I'm happy to use gray water. I think that, you know, the problem with gray water is you have to be pretty, pretty, pretty much a, uh, have bought into the whole concept because if you go and you start using gray water in your landscape and you're pumping your used uh, washing machine water out and you've been using Tide or something like that in there for detergents, all those things that really work to pull soils out of your clothing, they don't do real well in the soil. They, they, they continue to work and break down, break down soil and we don't wanna see that. So I think treated gray water is, is really the way to go if you're gonna use gray water. And we're seeing projects where they're collecting the gray water on from the site and processing it on site for use in, in the landscape. So that, that's, that's nice to see and we like that. Yeah, so the filtered gray water, uh, is, is that really expensive? Um, filtered isn't because you can just filter it. It's the treatment that starts to get expensive because if you're just filtering it, all you're doing is removing hair and lint and anything else that might have gone into the system. But, you know, it doesn't take anything that's dissolved out of there. You know, and, and, and you see some people who are really pro gray water and yeah, and they're willing to use low, low sudsing, you know, products for their, for their washing machines, things that are really bio-friendly and eco-friendly and all that. But, you know, nothing scares me more than someone coming and tell me they're going to go and put in a, a collect gray water from a, you know, an apartment housing project for use and thing. You have no control over what goes in. All those things you use on your hair to get that great, great hairdo, those things all work against you in the soil when they came out in the gray water. Yeah, what a great po point, right? I hadn't thought about that, but right, the apartment, when you said you have to be all in. Yeah. You have, yeah. And, and I think a lot of people will be, but that's, uh, that's a great oh, point. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that are, and, uh, you know, we, we see them trying to collect everything possible. We're doing a project right now where they are collecting condensate and they are collecting gray water and they are going to treat the gray water. And then we're seeing a lot of stormwater water collection. That's really more driven by the fact that the cities don't want you releasing the stormwater into their stormwater system because it's already at capacity. And so we're being forced to, to use that in the landscape. Um, I'd like to see us be able to store that water a little longer, maybe do a little bit of treatment on it because unfortunately, a lot of these systems, they design them to capture half an inch or six tenths of an inch of water and then it's going to rain again in a week and they want to get all that water out of the system into the landscape that already got rained on and there's no it doesn't need the water so we end up using the irrigation system as a disbursement of, for the storm water which i don't think is really the you know it, it doesn't really conserve water in that respect all it does is get rid of the storm water Right, right. Interesting. Um, so um, one thing I've talked to you about before um, was uh, Saudi Arabia. Now they have a lot of desal there, right? And in fact, they're actually very water challenged. I think everybody thinks of Saudi Arabia as just a very affluent country. They have all the water they need, and it's actually not the case. There's many people that don't have water every day, all day. Mm. Now with their desal, are they using the desal water for plants? Um they're not they, they they don't they don't really want to use it for plants and they try not to that most of the most of the work we do in in the middle east countries are using what they call treated sewage effluent or tse water it's their version of a recycled water product and that's required for use on all landscapes i'm not saying no plants get watered with desal water but you know i, I think 99 percent of it's all captured you know sewage 
and then treated for, for use in the irrigation. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's, that's the standard over there. Right. So who drinks the desal water? What's that? Who drinks the desal water? Everybody drinks. Everybody. Water. <laughs> if you go over there, you'll drink the desal water. Yeah. How they get right. their water supply. Right. Not the plants, though, and I think that's the important part. Right. That's the important point. Is. And and really every Middle Eastern country where we work in, whether it's you know uh, Abu Dhabi uh, or or Dubai or Saudi Arabia, they've all got some version of lead uh, type of an approach. And I was working this morning on a project where they want us to conserve 80% of the water from the baseline calculation, which is extremely difficult to, to, to say, this is your baseline, reduce it by 80%. That's a tremendous goal. And uh, we're, we're playing with it. We're trying to figure out how it's going to happen. We've done all the irrigation portion we can. We're up, we're using the highest efficiency systems that, you know, they are available and they accept. Now it comes down to plant materials and those lush plants on your background there would not fly, Richard. <laughs> so, <laughs> Desal or not, they're not flying Desal. there. Yeah, 80%, that seems like an unreasonable expectation. I, I believe it is. I believe it is. Uh, I, I think we, we were coming in at, at about 60% reduction from baseline, which I thought was very good. And, and I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of these things are cookie cutter. You know, they say, okay, you, we want you to go 80%. Well, you can do that in like a streetscape or in a green a green belt area because you're going to use really low water use plantings that are, you know, you see them from a distance. But if you start getting into an urban environment where you're sitting at a planter next to a bench, you know, you may not want to be sitting next to, you know, a cactus or a crown of thorns or some other kind of plant that's really low water use, but maybe isn't the best in an urban environment. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, um, Lance, let's talk about regulatory changes or policies, right? We talked about smart controllers already. Uh, uh, this, I think you said, is going to continue to grow. We'll probably have more regulation. What do you, what do you see these regulations as being and, and, and what's a worry to you? Well, I think they continue to, you know, uh, push, like I said, for plant, plant, plant materials that are that are getting much lower in water use. Um, uh, the WELO does say now that 75% of the plants within a, the new WELO, if it passes, and it probably will, will be that uh, in a residential condition, 75% of the plant should have a uh, plant coefficient of less than 30% of ET or 30% is their goal. And then in non-residential, which means commercial sites, things like that, we'll have to have 100% of the plants uh, be that. And from an irrigation standpoint, we can irrigate that fine, but we, we do work hand in hand with our clients to help develop the water strategy. And, and sometimes it's really hard to get those water low water use plants that really create the desired effect within the landscape. Um, I'm also concerned that I see that, you know, the big push to continue dropping these allowable you know, uh, water use levels. And, uh, you know, currently we're at 55% of uh, ET for residential and 45 for non-residential. Yeah, I, this current WELO doesn't show any reduction from that, but I'm sure that's going to come. I'm sure they're going to push for that to be lower. And it comes down to a certain point that, you know, we're, we're, we're really struggling to meet those goals. Um, yeah. So WELO stands for Water Efficient Landscape Ordinance for California, right? Correct. And, and 
California does kind of set the trend on a lot of environmental laws. So, you know, I, I, I can see some of these other states, like you're saying, Nevada and Colorado, maybe, you know, taking parts of those of those ordinances and incorporating them into their own. Um, we're kind of the test bed in California for a lot of these things. Yes. Yeah, so here's the one thing I think a lot of people think about is I think all these mainly apply to new construction. And as I look around where I live, 99% uh, of the homes have been around for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I don't think any of this is applying to them. Is that correct? That is correct. And there's a lot of places out there. If you think about all the construction was done from the 1940s up until the 2000s, we got 60 years of, 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 of projects that have gone in. And certainly a lot of those landscapes have been renovated. But there's a lot of landscapes from the 60s and 70s that are still using those old systems, those old spray systems. Uh, we see it all the time. We get brought in to redesign the landscaping, a certain area of the project, and we walk around and we find really old irrigation product. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not even close to using the, the kind of, you know, high efficiency projects that we're using now on new landscapes. And so you can basically say those are all systems that are probably working at, at best 50% efficiency. And there's a lot of water waste going on there that could be improved. And uh, I know it's, it's probably not desirable to a lot of people to push renovation of landscapes onto people who've owned their homes or owned their businesses or their apartment complexes for a long time. But there's a lot of water savings that could happen if, if that were done. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, even the mention of uh, wood pipes in LA uh, earlier, right? You, yeah. you start to think what's out there and, and, and how long it's been there. I mean, uh, a lot of the yeah. schools I visit have still have galvanized pipe. And um, It's been a while, but I, I, you know, a few years back, we were going out to some schools in the Los Angeles area that still had hydraulic controllers, where instead of wires, they had hydraulic tubes that ran out to every valve on the job site. And every one of those systems was leaking. You'd open up the, the box and they, there was just a puddle of water and it was they were constantly leaking. Yeah. Yeah. So Lance, um, you know, this next question is about drip irrigation or micro irrigation in general. Okay. And do you think it's going to have a big impact on the industry in the next three to five years? I mean, are, are sprays and rotors done and everything's going to be moving to drip? I don't think that er any that everything will be moving to drip because there are still some, you know, some really good applications for overhead spray. I mean, you know, the development of some of these multi-stream nozzles that Rainbird and Hunter have now that, that really increase the efficiency, that's great. Um, you know, you start looking at slope irrigation and, you know, and when you start looking at costs to, to irrigate a slope, like with a hydro seed or something like that on it, uh, drip is really not efficient in that those situations you know i mean they, it's hard to germinate a hydro seed from two inch two plus inches below the ground so i think there's still those applications and and i'm still a fan of overhead spray for for sports fields and large turf areas and parks and recreational areas because i think that the efficiencies have gotten quite a bit better and they're easier to maintain and, and there's a lot of there's a lot of pitfalls with subsurface drip in certain applications i mean but it is certainly growing. Uh, and I think uh, the industry has really accepted drip irrigation, especially tubing style drip irrigation, because it is less expensive than point source irrigation. And 
I think where point source really shines is when you start dealing with like more desert type irrigation, like you might see in Arizona and Nevada, where you have plants that are separated by areas of rock mulch. You don't need to water the rock mulch. Let's water just the plant. And, and those make a lot of sense. And, uh, and we're, we see that continuing to be the trend. Yeah, that's interesting too, you know, from that standpoint too of uh, uh, turf going away, more point source, and uh, you can certainly see the trends that way. And I like your point too about uh, taking what you need for maybe overhead irrigation, making it more efficient. Exactly. But, you know, I, I, I agree that we probably in, in years past have overused turf. And if you go to certain parts of the country, you still see a lot of turf going down. But in areas where water conservation is necessary, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be reducing turf, but we should reduce turf to be, you know, uh, useful turf, you know, and you know, let's face it, we all love going out and throwing the ball around with the kids and throwing the frisbee with the dog, all those kind of things. We like lawns for those things. And so, you know, those are ones that we need to keep and, you know, we need to make sure that people have access to good recreational areas and, and lawns are a big part of that. And, uh, and I think we'll continue to see that. Um, and I think overhead spray is still going to be the, the, the go-to for, for large turf areas in the coming, in the coming years. Yeah. Oh, and I kind of like that, right? It's middle ground. It's not uh, extreme one way or the other. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. That's yeah. it. Real well, Lance, this has been a fabulous uh, session. Uh, this um, <laughs> went by super fast <laughs> and uh, I can't believe all the information you uh, that, that came out of this. you have any uh, parting thoughts before we, uh, we, we say goodbye to our audience today? Well, I think if you live in California, uh, reach out to your representatives, take a look at AB 1573 and 1572, see what you think about it. I mean, you may you may fall on one side or the other, but uh, it's in the Senate now. And, and, and if it passes through there, they'll probably get signed into law. And then I think there's some things that would really change the industry. And, you know, I like to promote people, you know, developing plants that are beautiful, that use less water and, uh, I don't want to see every landscape look just like the hillsides that surround surround it. I mean, I think we we need to accept that there's going to be some plant materials that are not necessarily native, but are beautiful and very water conservative, and we should continue to push that. Yeah, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, Lance, because I think these are happening right now as we speak, and I know none of my neighbors know about it. Right, but those are gonna impact the way we all live. So uh, yeah, we do have to start educating and promoting uh, uh, that this is happening and, and, and share our views. Absolutely. Yeah, Agreed. well, Lance, thanks so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Uh, like I said, uh, your knowledge uh, in this industry and, and what's happening, uh, uh, no one else has it. So we really appreciate getting that information. Well, you're too kind, Richard. Thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. you all attending. Yeah. And yeah, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who joined today. You know, we know uh, you've got busy days these days, especially June and landscaping. So we really appreciate you spending some time with us. Remember, we've got over 300 of these trainings on the janesusa.com website forward slash trainings. And remember, they're all free. And uh, you can also get some uh, Irrigation Association credits for watching those as well. So enjoy that. And uh, and also, uh, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, we extract all this audio out, put it on a podcast. And I know many people are enjoying that too. So anyway, Lance, thanks again for being here. Uh, thank you, everybody. We're going to be back next week to talk about some uh, ag irrigation subjects with Corey Brown. So thanks again, Lance. Thank you. Talk soon. All Bye -bye. right. I know.